Hey, this is Daniel Vitalis, and today we'll be mapping wild food on the 15-minute matrix. Welcome to the 15-Minute Matrix. I'm Andrea Nakayama, functional medicine nutritionist and your host. This is the podcast that brings you bite-sized insights and lessons on how to use the most important tool in functional medicine and functional nutrition. Today on the 15-Minute Matrix, I'll be talking with Daniel Vitalis. Daniel Vitalis is the host of Wild Fed. For 10 years, he lectured around North America and abroad, offering workshops that helped others lead healthier, more nature-integrated lives. A successful entrepreneur, he founded the nutrition company SirThrival.com back in 2008. Most recently, he hosted the popular podcast, Rewild Yourself. Daniel is a registered Maine guide, writer, public speaker, interviewer, and lifestyle pioneer who's especially interested in helping people reconnect with wildness, both inside and outside of themselves. After learning to hunt, fish, and forage as an adult, Daniel created WildFed to inspire others to start a wild food journey of their own. Daniel, welcome. I'm thrilled to have you here at the 15-Minute Matrix. Thanks so much, Andrea. I've been such a fan of yours for a really long time, back to your raw food days. So <laughs> you kind of have been one of my guides and teachers along the way, and I've learned so much from you. And I, I really love and appreciate where your attention has gone and how you are focused on wild foods and a, really creating a wild food movement. Can you start us out just with a definition for coaches and clinicians of how you would define a wild food? Yeah, well, you know, wild foods are foods that have not been domesticated. So they are most of the foods on the planet, especially when you look at, you know, other organisms and what they eat, wild organisms. Most of the food that is available on the planet's wild food. Most of the food we became a species eating was wild food. So the only foods that aren't wild foods would be the foods that have been domesticated by people. In other words, where we've moved from natural selection that takes place in the ecosystem to unnatural selection, which is just a way of saying people have modified through breeding and through habitat changes and things like that to create other organisms. So domesticated things would be our chickens, for instance, which come from mm wild jungle fowl or beef cows, which come from the wild animal called the aurochs, or it could be the lettuces that come from the wild lactucas. So these are the progenitors to the domesticated foods we eat, or often they're foods that we just don't eat anymore, um, but are you know native to our, our local habitats. Right. And when we eat these more domesticated foods, we clearly see more imbalances in the body. What did you see in your own inner ecosystem as you started to adopt a more wild food diet? That's a difficult question for me to answer, if I'm real honest, because of how long and slow my transition towards these things has been. So for me, a lot of the physical changes took place from dietary changes I'd made before I was really deep into wild foods. But what I will say is that I find these foods to be much more flavorful 
and I find them to be much more nutritionally dense. But most of the benefits that I experience from wild foods now for me are more psychological and emotional because of the connectedness that I feel to my landscape and the connectedness I feel to other species. But as you know, if you followed my work for some time, I've been on you know this kind of a diet even before I hunted and gathered it myself right. for so long. So that almost be a little difficult for me to quantify. Yeah, that makes sense. I think it is a long and slow transition. And it's something that we have to remember when we're working with other people as well, that if they're coming from a more processed food diet, there's a huge transition. They might feel it right away, but moving towards a more wild food diet, there's going to be subtle transitions that I'm sure impact our hormones and our immune function because we're getting what nature intended us to get from our foods. Take us into some of the foods that you really have embraced and love to talk about. I, I loved your video series. I'm going to link to it in the show notes. Really fun to see you doing it, Daniel, out there, <laughs> doing the real work to hunt and gather your food. What are some of your favorites that you consume for their nutritional benefits? Yeah, people ask me that a lot. Like, what are your favorites? And it kind of depends on the season that I'm mm. in. So just today finished bottling the last of our maple syrup. So all of my sugar for the year, you know, I produce in just about a month and a half, right at that time where we have freezing nights and warming days. And I concentrate the sap, the blood of maple trees. I use red maples and I produce, you know, all of the sweetener that I'm going to use for the year. And that's just wrapping up. And that's my favorite thing right now. And then uh, right after that, I'll go into birch syrup. And that's a much more savory syrup that I'll mm -hmm. make from the top of birch trees. And then it's going to be wild turkey season. And I'll be filling my freezer with turkey meat. And that includes, you know, because I'm able to do that sort of beak to tail fan, that means that I'll have you know, organ meats, and it means I'll have dark meat and light meat, and I'll have things like the feet of those turkeys, which will make a really collagen-rich broth and things like that. And then I'll go into the wild green season, and it'll be fiddleheads and ramps and nettles. So as the season unfolds, it's like always something new coming that I'm really, really excited about. And just at the point where I'm getting kind of sick of it, it kind of ends, and it's on to the next thing. So I'll be honest, I'm a little tired of slogging around with these maple uh, sap buckets, you know, walking yeah. from tree. Um, you know, it's been fun, but it's been six weeks of it. And now it's over and I go on to the next thing. So one of the things I love about wild foods compared to a domesticated diet, a domesticated diet is so homogenous. It's the same foods all the time. You go into the supermarket, everything is always available. But when you're into wild foods, you have true seasonality, the kind that let chefs really celebrate, that the things are always coming in at their peak. And then when they start to fade off, you're on to the next fresh thing. I love that you're bringing in diversity and seasonality. Those are two really important messages that we can take forward for ourselves and also for our clients and patients. This is a passion of yours right now, really kind of celebrating that diversity. Can you speak into what that does for us when we embrace diversity and don't eat the same thing every day all year long? Yeah, and it almost contrasts with what happens when you don't do that because, you know, one thing people don't realize when they go to their grocery store, even when they go to a good health food store and you look at the – or a farmer's market, you don't realize that you're only seeing really just a couple of species. But just like our domestic dogs, which we've turned, you know, one species, the gray wolf, into 500 breeds that look like different species, but they're actually all the same species, you know, we deal with that too. So, you know, our broccoli – 
our cauliflower, our cabbage, our Brussels sprouts, our kale, our collard greens, our kohlrabi, that's all one species. That's brassica oleracea. So when you eat all of those variants of it and you eat a different one every day, what you're doing is actually bioaccumulating toxins that are naturally occurring in those plants. Um, For for instance, there's a goitrogen that exists in the brassicas. And so we don't realize we're actually having a negative impact on our thyroid gland over time because we keep eating that same plant thinking we're eating a lot of variety. Uh, conversely, when you do wild foods, you're, you're getting so, not just all this variety of nutrients, but you're getting a huge variety of medicines. Remember, most of what we call herbalism are just plants that are wild plants, so they still have intact medicine. We tend to breed medicine out of plants when we domesticate them because medicines tend to have flavors that are bitter or pungent or astringent. So we remove those and we end up with plants that have no medicine. So we end up with a very medicine deficient diet. So I get a big range of medicines in my diet as well. So that's a really nice piece. And then when it comes to animal products, you know, I get a really good range of lipids from the oily fish that I eat like mackerel to the more proteinaceous fish that I'd eat like cod. Um, from the oleic acids that I get from bear fat uh, to the very iron-rich meats that I get from deer. So there's this tremendous range of things. And I think what's happened is most people have fallen into a rut of eating probably about 30 foods a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, they might not think so until they look at them at the at the species level when they actually look at their species. One thing I want to point out real quick too is that there is emerging evidence, you know, nutrigenomic evidence that the microRNA of the plants that we eat actually has an effect on our epigenetic expression. So, Absolutely. Right. So that's really fascinating because if you're only eating 30 plants, you might not be accessing the full range of your genetic potential or epigenetic potential at least. Um, you might not be turning on or turning off switches that you could be by having more variety. So, you know, for people who are like, hey, I'm not going to ever go out and hunt and gather. I don't really see myself doing that. You know, what you want to look at is how do you recreate some of that through, you know, bringing in more herbs, more teas, more spices, things like that, that actually add true variety and give you that phytochemistry that triggers those um, and those, that plant RNA that triggers those epigenetic changes. So I think we're only using a couple of colors on the palette, so to speak. And there's a big range of opportunity out there when we start looking at more species as being foods. So well said. And what I'm thinking about as you're talking is how many nutrients the body cannot synthesize, right? Like we need to take them in through our foods and people are often looking to supplementation for those things. And what you're basically saying is that when we rotate and we embrace diversity and seasonality, our bodies are getting what our ancestors did when we didn't have supplements. We were actually taking what we needed in through our food to go from deficiency to sufficiency. And I think that's important in terms of the fats you're eating and that balance that the bodies had that got way off balance as we went into more domestication of our foods. In talking to practitioners, can you give us some more insight into the baby steps that you would advise to help us to bring our customers, our clients and patients into this realm of thinking through diversity? You know, I think that there's the diversity piece, which is kind of like, I think one really beneficial thing for a person to do would be to take a food log with a client, right? Mm -hmm. To do a food log. And so we're not used to thinking of food in this way. 
So let me just back up real quick and say, most people never take a moment to define food. What is food? Well, food is the tissues, usually the cells of living creatures or once living creatures. There's very little we eat that isn't the actual tissues of an organism. We don't eat non-living material. We eat living material. We can't synthesize food for that reason. We eat life forms. Um, we eat their body parts or excretions from their bodies. So most of us don't ever think about it like that. And if we were to take a food log and we could actually step back and go, okay, like let's look to the Linnaean um, binomial naming system here. Let's use the binomial nomenclature. What species is this? So if you get you know somebody to list out everything they've eaten for a week and then you could actually categorize that out into species – you could actually figure out like how many species is this person eating and then start saying like, well, how do we add novel species in? And I to go back to what I was saying before. One way we can do that is with spices, right? Mm -hmm. uh, that's a range of plants that are still very close to wild or sometimes wild. But they the reason they have such intense flavor and that we use them as spices is because of their strong phytochemistry. Yeah. That essentially that's medicine. Again, herbalism is a way to do that where, you know, typically an average person's not going to have, let's say, nettle in their diet. But that's something that's easy to bring in in, in a tea bag or yeah. in a little ball or something, but isn't easy to get onto somebody's plate unless they forage like I do. And even if they did, it's only really a food for two weeks or right. so out of here. So by bringing in those dried herbs, we start to increase what's in our diet as well. And then I think it's also really important that whenever you have the opportunity, you look at, you know, for instance, let's say you've decided you want to add in uh, more antioxidant rich pigments into the diet. So you go, okay, we're going to add in blueberries here. Well, every chance you can, you want to go with a wild blueberry compared to a, a domestic blueberry. They're very obviously different when you look at them in the sense yes. that, you know, the, the wild blueberry is much smaller. But think about this, because it's smaller, it has less internal mass to skin ratio. And the skins are where the pigments are. So if there's less internal mass, that means per unit you actually have more skin, which means more of those antioxidant pigments. You have always higher antioxidants anyway, and you have higher vitamin you know, and mineral uh, nutrients in there, micronutrients in there as well. So that's just one example, but it's true usually across the board. And you could think of it more like a scale too. You could say, okay, it, the variety that's grown for most supermarkets is kind of probably going to be your worst one. Right. Then the one that you're going to get from the organic section is probably a little bit better. But then if I can find an heirloom variety, that's going to be better. And then if I can move from the heirloom to the actual wild variety, even better. So I think about kind of working my way backward genetically from the most domesticated to the least domesticated. Another thing to consider here is that it's not just a lack of variety, but it's a lack of genetic variety mm -hmm. sometimes too. So, you know, if you, most people have only eaten a couple of apples in their life, and I don't mean just a couple of apple varieties, I'm saying that those apples you've eaten are all clones. So whenever you've eaten a red, you've only had one red delicious. You've only had one Granny Smith. They're all genetic clones of each other. So we can't grow apples reliably from seed and know what we're going to produce because every apple seed, no matter what variety you take it from, produces a different tree a, with a different fruit. So in order to circumnavigate that, what you know growers have done is grafted and genetically cloned apples. So an apple a day, it's like, well, what apple are we talking about? Which peach are we talking about? Which you know, what are we talking about here? Because a lot of these things are 
genetic clones, which means that the body, you know, and we are still very early in in the study of nutrigenomics, but yes. we are arriving at this place where we go in the same way that we kind of thought everything was about macronutrients in the 19, you know, 20s or whatever. And then it was like, we got into like, wait a second, there's mi micronutrients. Oh, these are important. And then we got into this phase of, wait, there's all this phytochemistry that's important. And now we're going, oh, wait, genetics actually impacts us too. And as we get deeper into that, I think we're going to realize that it's as weird to eat a cloned banana as, you know, with no seeds in it, a non-reproductive cloned banana, as it would be to eat cloned sheep. You know, the average person would not really want to sit down to a meal of cloned sheep if you told them, but they're eating cloned, you know, fruits all day long. And so I think that that's another area where there's a lot of opportunity. So like, for instance, back to apples, an apple that's grown from seeds called a pippin. And a pippin is uh, a wild natural fruit. That's contrasted against the varieties that are available in our supermarket, which have been cloned since the person first discovered that, that fruit however many years back. So uh, there's lots of little games. And a couple of books that I would recommend. One that stands out to me is uh, Eating on the Wild Side by Joe Robinson, which is, a mm -hmm. which is a great summary of the kind of things that I'm talking about. Uh, I think that's a good one to really help somebody get an understanding of how to sort through produce to find what's really closest to the wild progenitor. I love that. And I love that you gave us a spectrum because I live in a bubble, even though I live in a city, it is a city where there is a huge amount of attention on more wild foods or more biodynamic foods or people really playing with what they could bring back from our ancestors. I know when I moved here from San Francisco and tasted a grape, I was like, oh, that's where the grape flavor comes from. I never understood like how the grape candy we might have eaten as kids, some of us got that flavor because I never tasted it in a grape until I ate a real grape that has a seed in it and it's tiny and it has more skin, but it is so bursting with that flavor. So coming back to these things is it's a delight and we can help people and ourselves to find that delight by getting out there and finding the foods that are more wild or on the spectrum that you outlined for us. Daniel, I know you have so much to share and we're going to link in the show notes to the book and to your resources. Any other final notes that you would want practitioners to know about the work that you're doing and what you've been finding? Yeah. Well, let me just quickly say that I think if somebody wants to go past the how do I recreate it at the farmer's market supermarket and actually get outside, one of the really amazing things here is that you start to now you're forest bathing. Now you're getting yes. sunlight and creating vitamin D. Now yep. you're breathing fresh air. You're moving. You're squatting down. You're reaching over. You're starting to actually incorporate all of these important lifestyle pieces that can be cumbersome to try to recreate in our domesticated environment. So I really want to encourage people to get out, do plant walks, foraging classes, and things like that. And the most important thing for me has been to show people that wild foods aren't just like unpalatable, bitter twigs and berries. We're eating the foods that high-end chefs are sending out foragers and paying top dollar to bring into their restaurants because the wealthiest people in the world know they want to eat wild foraged ingredients and wild game. Why is that? It's not because they care about their nutrition. It's because these foods have the most flavor and the most impact on our palates. My real goal, because that's a Trojan horse, my real goal 
is to subtly and slowly call people back into nature. We've been looking in all the wrong places for fulfillment. And I think where we're going to find that is back out in the natural world, not in the sort of artificial built landscapes and environments that we've been huddling up in for so long. Bravo, Daniel. Thank you so much. Thank you. The 15-Minute Matrix is brought to you by me, Andrea Nakayama, and the Functional Nutrition Alliance. The 15-Minute Matrix team includes music by my son, Gilbert Nakayama, and production support from Renee Hunt, Natalie Merrill, and Christine Shook, along with sound production by Rowan Bradley. You can visit us and hear more episodes at 15minutematrix.com. And if you'd like to be notified each time there's a new podcast episode ready and waiting for you, please go to 15minutematrix.com forward slash notify. We'll be sure to drop into your inbox with a short reminder that a new episode is ready for you. You also have an open invitation to email us. I'd love to know who you'd like to hear on the podcast and what topics you'd like to see mapped on the 15-Minute Matrix. Get specific, email us. You can do so at ask at 15minutematrix.com. That's ask at 15minutematrix.com.